Hey, this is Dan, and thanks for joining me for this edition of the Law by Dan podcast. I've been a lawyer now for close to 25 years, and needless to say, I have met and continue to meet lawyers who are extraordinary, inspirational, and simply outstanding at what they do. So this episode is me talking with such a lawyer. I hope you find it interesting. When it comes to criminal lawyers and the name Michael Bosher, they're synonymous. Michael, of course, is a leading Queensland criminal lawyer who has acted in very high-profile criminal law matters, both nationally and internationally. In this special edition of Law by Dan, I talk with Michael about his career, some of those notorious cases, like Brett Cowan, who of course murdered Daniel Morecambe, and we also talk about the impact on him personally. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Mike, thanks for joining me for the podcast. We've known each other for a, for a fair while. We have known each other a long time. I'm, uh, I'm pleased to be invited on your podcast. I'm very glad it's a podcast because, as you know, uh, I definitely have a, a head for radio, not television. <laughs> Mike, what are you working on at the moment? I've got a few big matters on at the moment. Um, Dan, we've got uh, some large importations that were discovered uh, probably two years ago now. Um, one of them was uh, a large amount of amphetamine, about a ton of it, found in storage boxes in a um, holiday unit here in Brisbane. And um, we also have another large matter about to come up, which is about six, 700 kilos of cocaine that was allegedly bought in um, in the floor in the false floor in the shipping container. When you deal with those types of matters, it must be a, a huge amount of you know evidence that you're sorting through to to substantiate uh, whether or not these charges have got legs. The size of the the brief in in matters like like those ones, Dan, it's just enormous. It, if they were reduced to paper form like we used to get them, uh, we would be you know filling fifteen twenty bookshelves worth of lever arts binders. Fortunately now, being all electronic, that we can actually store them uh, on an iPad. But um, that doesn't minimise the, you know, just the sheer grind work that you need to go through to make sure that you get across each and every piece of evidence that's been um, accumulated through the course of um, law enforcement investigations. Mike, given the enormity of that information, I'm assuming over many years of practice, you deploy a methodology for sorting out what's important and what isn't. Look, um, there is. There's always a, a process on a big matter like that. Uh, different lawyers use different systems, for want of a better word, to, to make sure that they're um, getting through it as efficiently as they can. Um, our process is fairly standard in that everyone in this practice uses it, that we get an overview of um, of what the case is about. And then I like to um, have it then chopped into particular buckets so that we have, you know, um, eyewitness statements, general witness statements, um, surveillance footage, phone taps, so that all of the, the separate, all the items are separated from each other so that that way you can actually then allocate certain parts of a, of a big matter like those ones I was talking about to an individual um, in the practice whose job it is to um, make sure that they're fully across that part and then we can get together. And although these matters are um, extremely large, 
it often boils down to quite a small amount that you know that we've got to um, challenge. Uh, but to get to that refinement process takes a, a long time and a lot of work. And you've got the client uh, involved in all this too. I mean, I suppose uh, there's uh, a lot of angst that the clients have uh, and, and trying to keep them abreast of the stuff that they need to be abreast of, but also sort of supporting them um, emotionally as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it's often difficult because, you, you know, we're not we're not their social worker or their psychologist, but um, – I, I use the analogy of it's like going to the to the doctor. You, 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 when you get told what you've got, you want to get told how it is that it's going to be treated. Um, and you also want to know about the side effects of the treatment, uh, how long the treatment is going to take, and what the likely um, prognosis is for a particular patient. So we're no different. We One of the things I always do is you sort of step out what, what the game plan is and when they will be informed about certain parts of, you know, the investigation into their matters along the way so that they're kept abreast of it. And just their general worries, of course, the anxiety level when you charge with something, particularly something significant, very high. And some clients just want to, you know, put their head down and charge at it um, like a wild rhinoceros. Um, that's not the best way forward. Others um, adopt the op ostrich mentality and just stick their head in the sand and so I'm paying you, you deal with it. Well, it's not quite that simple. Um, so finding that balance with with clients is is as much an art as understanding their legal predicament. What about the impact on that person if they're in custody in contrast to, say, a person that has got bail? I'm assuming that in the former case, they must just be doing head miles every minute of the day. Yeah, so that, that's very true. If if you're out and you're on bail, then the urgency of getting something done diminishes because um, you're not doing any dead time, for want of a better word. Uh, when you're in custody, then you, you literally have nothing else to do there other than worry about the reason why you're in custody. So um, the, the word you use, head miles, is a great explanation as to what um, clients go through when they don't have bail. And you find that it shifts too. So not only do you need to manage the client who quite understandably can get themselves really wound up about something that in the normal course of events isn't overly important so far as their legal matters are concerned, but you also have to help manage or try and help manage their families too because they, they go through the same process with personal things. And um, something that isn't overly significant to them or normally would be overly significant to them takes on a whole new aspect when it's all you've got to think about or it's what you're thinking about at that point in time. So I always warn families that, look, uh, you're going to get the full gamut of emotions from somebody whilst they're in custody and they'll ring up um, and be massively concerned about something which in the great scheme of things is trivial but to them, it's not. You know, it's it's their issue for that day, and they need to feel like they're they're doing something and being productive. Mike, when you look back over your career, are there cases that are a lot more pronounced to you, both technically and personally? Like I'm thinking of cases like you know the Brett Cowan, which was of course the Daniel Morecambe murder. Are there cases that 
are, you know, that are quite pronounced that come to your mind? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's some that um, will never, never go away. Um, there's some that I've done 20 years ago that I will still occasionally dream about, you know, or have a nightmare about. Uh, Daniel Morgan was an obvious one, um, you know, having to cross-examine witnesses with his parents sitting right behind you uh, doing what you're paid to do to um, defend your client, knowing full well that, you know, there's a mum and dad sitting behind you that are, are grieving and grieving for very good reason. Uh, it's difficult. Um, I, I can remember one that still stuck with me after more than 20 years was the murder of a of a newborn baby um, out on Logan Lee. And um, the second the baby was born, it was it was murdered and then literally butchered um, by a qualified butcher. Um, and, and parts of that, that child who only lived for a matter of seconds, you know, were dug up by dogs and, you know, deposited on neighbours' doorsteps and things like that. So that stuff then, unfortunately, just never leaves you. Mm-hmm. And you just you have to find ways to cope with that. I suppose the the impact on a, a young criminal lawyer, as you were in that case, or a younger criminal lawyer, I should say, yeah. um, far more severe than uh, perhaps cases these days. Given that you you are um, you know, experienced and have seen a lot of this stuff uh, come underneath the bridge. Um, yes, I think in general that would be fair, but you, you also get the odd matter where. Um, it may be a client or it may be a victim um, that still very much gets under the skin, probably less frequently uh, than, than it used to. But um, there are still matters today after, what, nearly 30 years, and um, I am an old criminal lawyer now, that, that still have a significant emotional impact. When you were back at uni, uh, you know, contemplating a career in law, I mean, you did you did so well at you. Know, I think you what you came out with honours, didn't you? No, I didn't quite get there, Dan, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, from all reports, you're a great, a, a great, uh, a great law student. Why, why, why did you want to do crime? Um, it's it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do um, in law, Dan. It's I can I wanted to be criminal. I wanted to be a criminal lawyer from about ten years of age. I, I don't remember what. The inspiration was, or why that became something that I wanted to do. But um, I was very blessed that you know I've got four young, I've got four teenage young adult children now who still don't really know what they want to do. I've known since I stepped on you then, and everything that from that point was directed towards sitting in the chair that I sit in now. When you graduated, what was the first firm you worked for? So I, before I graduated, well, so while I was still at uni, I went and worked for the Crown Solicitor's Office. So I left there 18 months of the day and I didn't have another job to go to, but I thought if I don't leave within 18, 18 months, then I'll be, I may end up stuck here forever with short sleeve shirts and brown suits. So I, um, I left 18 months of the day. I did three months at a, um, or three or four months at a civil firm in the city. Um, doing convincing work, which absolutely um, solidified that my desire to be a criminal lawyer. The whole time I was there, and I was very open with them, I said, if I get something in crime, I'm, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I came across a, 
and an ad for a criminal lawyer um, with a fellow called Brendan Ryan. It was Brendan P. Ryan and Associates. Uh, I joined that firm in 1994, and then we became partners about a year later and were partners, I think, until about 2012. And then we went our separate ways, and it's been, I think Brendan still has his own practice with another person, and we have boss lawyers. During those formative years, Mike, were there barristers or other solicitors that, you know, really were a source of inspiration to you? Oh, without doubt, without doubt. So, um, and there are a number of them, Dan, but uh, I always tell any young lawyers that work for me that I'm training, never, ever sit outside a court room waiting for your turn. Go and sit inside the courtroom, and I still do it to this day because um, you'll learn two things. You'll see other lawyers operating, so you can take the good and the bad from them. Um, And secondly, you get to know your judges, which is a really important skill to have. But for me coming up, um, yeah, there were a lot. uh, There was um, Judge Farr. He was a barrister at the time, Brad Farr. Uh, Tony Kimmins, who... Um, is still at the bar and has been for about 30 years. I, I learned an awful lot from working with him um, as counsel. Uh, as a magistrate, uh, Peter Smid, um, who was also at the bar at the time when I was much younger. And then um, uh, Justice Davis, who's Peter Davis, who was uh, yeah. um, a solicitor, then became a barrister, and, and I used to do a lot of work with him. Um, so they're all inspirations. And then... I've also done a lot of work with um, Brett Walker from from Sydney, um, who is probably Australia's leading Queen's counsel, um, who has the ability to make any lawyer feel inadequate. So I always enjoy, still to this day, working with him. I um, take a pen and piece of paper along with me, write down all the words that he uses that I need to look up when I get back to work. Um, But just to hear some of those people how they craft an argument, um, how they present the argument. Someone like Tony Kimmins, who is just a genius with tactics um, in preparing um, a game plan for a trial and then following that through. Uh, There's been, I've left out a heap, of course, Dan, but there's been so many of them that that I've learnt from along the way. When I was studying, Mike, I used to spend a lot of time with lawyers like Terry O'Gorman, who was and, and is tremendous, but I also got to see the late and great Shane Herbert in action. Oh, yeah. I, um, I, I did a, not a lot of work, but I certainly did some work with Shane uh, before he passed. And um, he had a remarkable legal brain, uh, which is not unique, but he also had the ability to uh, relate to juries. Uh, and he also had the fiercest technique of cross-examining people that, that I've ever seen. So he... His nickname was Sid Vicious, and it was well You know, you've looked at others for inspiration, and similarly, uh, there's been a uh, a bunch of young lawyers that have looked at you for inspiration as well. And I, you know, it'd be remiss not to mention that um, you know, Bosch lawyers over many years has been a, a a training ground for 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 a lot of you know uh, young lawyers who are, who are now successful, be it still in practice or or either at the bar. Um, that's very true. I, I actually counted them one day, uh, probably six months or so ago, uh, and it was well into the forties. The number of lawyers that that uh, I've had a you know real hands on um, 
part of their training process. Um, so at the end of the day, Dan, at least half of the legal criminal law profession in Brisbane, I've, tra- I've trained my own competition effectively. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, they, they, they all have different skills and different talents and they have gone out, as I did, you know, made their own way in the world. But it's actually one of the really enjoyable things is to um, train young lawyers um, not only on how to be a lawyer but how to run a law practice, how to attract clients um, and tell them to just be a sponge, you know, learn what to do and what not to do and what works for you and what doesn't work for you, particularly with advocacy. Um and, and develop, you know, your own process and style. With those young lawyers, is there something specific that you, uh, you know, recommend they get a grip on that will hold them in good stead in being a, a very good criminal lawyer? Uh, yes, there, there's a number of key aspects. So one of the things I always look for when I get a resume, if I'm looking for an employee, uh, if they haven't been uh, – a checkout chick or a barista or dug holes or worked at the fish and chip shop, um, even if they've you know, got first-class honours, they're going to struggle because part of what we do or the main part of what we do is dealing with people. So they've got to have really, really good personal skills um, and they've got to deal with people who are in high-stress situations. And that's why customer service as a training ground as well as the legal skills, it can be so valuable. Um, they're going to have a, a great work ethic. There's a lot of hours involved. Um, but they've also got to be able to have fun too. So um, all of those aspects are, are key to making up uh, a good criminal law practitioner. Um, the other thing, if you, if you want to be successful as a criminal lawyer, um, you need to be blessed with um, a very, very healthy ego. So um, we all have one. You, you can't do it without having it. You have to actually go into a courtroom um, and um, believe that what you're going to present um, is better than what your opponent's going to present. It, it's no different to towing the line in a in a basketball match or a football game. Um, it, it's a it, it, there is an element of competition and. Sports not the right word, but uh, um, putting your skills to the to the test. Mike, do they also need the fortitude to um, to be able to successfully brunt up against that sort of public perception of criminal lawyers as being almost as bad as what the people are that they defend? How how on earth could you represent that person, you scum? And I know during the course of many of your matters, you've had death threats and all sorts of crazy stuff go on for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, all the time. Um, look, you, you do have to be able to deal with that. It's a fact of life. I remember as a really young lawyer, uh, I was at a wedding at a table and um, we were all obviously chatting. I didn't know the other people on the table. And this lady I've been chatting to for a while said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. And what area do you practice in? I'm a criminal lawyer criminal defence lawyer, that was it, didn't say a word to me for the rest of the night, um, judged me solely on on that. Um, yeah. Now, I would hazard a guess he's probably had a bad experience with a criminal lawyer who's either let it down or alternatively, you know, torn it to shreds in a witness box. Um, so she had a pretty low opinion of the profession. But 
yeah, if you if you can't deal with that um, perception, if you can't deal with the criticism that comes with it by those that don't fully understand what it is that we do, um, then you, you're going to struggle. You really will struggle. So, you know, the amount of messages I get, you know, how do you sleep at night? You know, you know you're a scum. You know better than that scum that you're defending. Like people who I don't, don't understand the role and B, um, have already made the assumption that whoever it is is in fact guilty of what's being alleged. Uh, it's pretty common. And, and yeah, death, many death threats over the years, damn many. Is, is there like cases where you uh, wish you weren't doing what you were doing? Like when you, when you look at the defendant across the table and uh, you know you're you're having an, uh, you know the upteenth uh, interview with them, um, and you know you've got this thing inside you that says, look, I I, I think this person's probably good for it, but you know they're, they're wishing to take this matter uh, you know further. Where, where do you where do you, like how does that sit? Um, poorly, it, it it does happen. You can't avoid it. It's human nature. Um, you always or nearly always form a view of, you know, the strength of the case against a person. It doesn't stop you from doing your job. In fact, if, if you believe or, or feel a person's probably guilty, you're more likely to go that extra mile so you don't com- compromise yourself professionally. Um, it can be really difficult then, particularly uh, with some, some offences much more difficult. So offences against children, uh, when you got to deal with that, then go home to your young family. Um, that that can be really challenging, but you really do need to, uh, as you walk out the door or as you approach home in the car, you need to switch that off, even if it means stopping down the, the road from the driveway for five minutes and just cranking the radio up and just letting that, that clear out of your head all the grief you've had during the day and the people that you have to deal with so that, you know, you can get, go home to your family with a, with a clear head. It's hard sometimes. Yeah, and I was going to say with with cases, again, like Cow and I, I mean, I, I bring that one up on, on, on now on a couple of occasions because it was enormous, uh, but facing that stuff each and every day, you know, it was just unrelenting. Uh, and yeah. it, uh, I mean, most firms uh, wouldn't have the capacity to to run a trial like uh, you did with uh, with that matter. It was just absolutely enormous. Yeah, it it, it stretched our resources, um, and as is always the case, that you know when that was at its height, um, we were also dealing with a, a number of other big cases. All yeah, once. it's true. Um, so it really does stretch the resources, um, but you, you need to. Just like anybody does who has a busy life and a busy practice, you you sit down and you you allocate the time out months in advance so that you know that when you know trial day comes that you've done everything that needs to be done to make sure that the full represent you know the full and proper representations there for the client. If you didn't do criminal law, um, what would you have done? I mean, would you have left law completely or uh, – I mean, I, I, no, I should sort of um, forecast to, to, to listeners that you, you are involved in other businesses as well. Um, yeah. you, know, you, you might every now and then be behind uh, the, the wheel on a, bre- on a bread van or something like that. 
<laughs> that can happen. Um, that's been known to happen or um, fixing an oven. So I've got some interest in, in bakeries at the moment, but I've always had um, something other than criminal law to focus on. Um, so I've, I've been in, I'm involved now pretty heavily in hospitality, but prior to that, um, my wife and I ran a fairly large um, animal rescue and rehabilitation farm. So that was, you know, as, as counterintuitive to criminal law as you could get. You know, um, and, and being outside and on tools and things like that. I, on the weekends or whenever I get time, I, you won't find me far away from a drill or a welder or something that's um, very, very different from, from what I, it is when I have a suit on. Mike, what about the snow business in the US? It's a business that um, combined a couple of my passions. One was... Um, technology and the other was snow skiing and um, as a much 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 younger man um, I used to ski competitively so uh, after I think it was about 20 years I've been doing criminal law um, I, th- I, I needed a break so I'd invested in this business we developed some technology to track ski school kids um, on mountains in the US so they've got separated from their instructors. We we could find them, and there are enormous mountains over there, and um, they do winter properly with lots of snow and uh, really cold temperatures. So I moved the family over there for a couple of years while we took that to market. Um, so most of my meetings were with ski school directors, and they were always busy, so I had to have those on chairlifts. Um, <laughs> so it was a pretty rapid couple of years. Um uh, in the Rocky Mountains, trying to decide whether I'd have my go to the meeting at Aspen or the meeting at Vale that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was an amazing couple of years for you and the family. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, great. I've sp- spoken with Al about it as well, and uh, you know, she, she sort of um, you know reminisces about those times as being you know like just absolutely wonderful. Uh, great for kids yeah. to be doing that stuff too. Hey, oh, it was terrific. Um, so far as you know, just developing them as as people. So exposing them to a you know different different part of the world and um, slightly different culture it, w- it was really good. Um, yeah, we don't regret for a minute that the time that we spent um, over there in the US. We'll do it again in a heartbeat. Mike, uh, thanks heaps. Pleasure, Dan. Anytime. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Law by Dan podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd love it if you could give a rating, whether you're on Spotify, iTunes, or any other podcast platform. By the way, you can reach out to me, should you wish, at lawbydan.com.